David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. You can take your seats. Uh, my name is Ben. If we don't know each other, I am aching all over because of field day yesterday. Uh, you know you're getting older when the thing, the event that injured me the most was the water balloon toss. Um, I don't realize I must have been like smashing my knees into the ground to kind of cushion the water balloon. We still lost. Um, anyway, great. Well, uh, we've been doing a series on the life of David, and I have um, a somewhat seemingly unremarkable chapter of David's life, but I actually think it's kind of an exciting story, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into it. Um, it's one of those times, I think today's story, we're basically going to read almost an entire chapter from the book of Samuel, and then just kind of let the story speak to us. It's going to be a very simple message, very simple um, lesson to kind of take from it. But I think it's, it's a pretty good uh, story to look at as a kind of key for what makes David tick and what makes David such an interesting character in the life of um, our faith. So let's just get straight into things. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 26. It's a large chunk of text to read, and so we've brought back everybody's favorite reader. Would you please welcome Dixon, who's going to come and read to us today? So David and Abishah went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside his camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishah said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike twice. But David said to Abishah, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him on his own time or will come, uh, <clears throat> the Lord himself will strike him or his own time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I have, that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear in the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of a hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? And David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? 
Why didn't you guard your Lord the King? Someone came to destroy your Lord the King. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that you? Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is the Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what, what wrong have I, am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have, gone and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts for a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for the righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord decided you, uh, delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your, valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Paul, Saul returned home. So long chunk of text. Uh, sometimes it's good to just read these things. Also to just get familiar and learn, you know, the stories that are in the Old Testament. Uh, for some context, David was on the run from King Saul, who was jealous of the fact that David was going to be his successor. <clears throat> and this story is actually the second time while David was on the run that he'd had the opportunity to, king, uh, to kill Saul. Um, the first time Saul was sleeping in a cave, David came across him, cut a piece of his cloak, um, but also in both occasions decided not to kill Saul. Um, in both circumstances, David chose mercy and forgiveness over bloodshed. And you wonder what stayed his hand, what kept him from killing his pursuer. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God by this point had left Saul, that Saul was essentially deranged with this obsession of killing David. Um, and his pursuit was so bad that David, among other things, had to hide amongst the Philistines who were the Israelites' mortal enemies and pretend to be a mad man in the streets um, just so that Saul wouldn't find him and yet here right at the moment that it seems that Saul was being delivered into David's hand he's walking in and he's seeing his enemy asleep at his feet he spares his life why is that I think there are a few lessons that we can pull from this and uh, I don't want to breeze past their importance one of them being that David's mercy and forgiveness really are powerful demonstrations of the kinds of actions that one day Jesus would command us to, to demonstrate when he says that we have to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. 
And I believe that forgiveness is one of the most powerful forces in the Christian faith. And I know that this story is used as one of the great examples of, of forgiveness and showing mercy. And it would be great to use this story to illustrate that. But that's not what I want to focus on today. Because I believe that while it was mercy and forgiveness that David showed to Saul, I think that staying his hand was an act of incredible faith. And what I want to do is focus on the act of faith that was allowing Saul to live. I feel like there are a few people here who know how difficult it can be to trust God that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. In Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Do you ever think about the promises of God in the Old Testament and how filled with chaos they seem to be? Why does it feel like every single time God promises something to somebody, what immediately follows is a season of complete and utter chaos. Think about this with the life of David. Let's put ourselves into the story. Uh, we know this from some of the things we've talked about in the last few weeks, and I'll just help anyone that's never heard this story catch up. David was this young shepherd boy. He had, I think he had six or seven older brothers. Details aren't that important. Uh, largely ignored. He was kind of spending his days out hanging out with the sheep, um, being a shepherd was a pretty lowly kind of social status. Um, and as a teenager, he's anointed the king of Israel. Now, we know that while he was looking after sheep, we're told that he, you know, he did some kind of pretty amazing things. He would like fight lions and bears to protect the sheep and that God would always help him with those things. Uh, but then imagine you're a teenager, you're sitting, he was probably around sort of 11 or 12, sitting out there with the sheep one night. And then someone comes running up the hill, and they're like, David, David, you've got to come. And he's like, what? And they're like, the prophet is here. The prophet is here. Now, back in that time in ancient Israel, the way that kings were chosen was that it wasn't just a typical line of succession. God would send the prophet to anoint whoever the new king was. So you're just this, like, 11-year-old kid shoveling sheep poop. And some guy runs up the hill, and he's like, you have to come. The prophet is here. So David runs down the hill, bursts through the door, and this old man pours oil all over his head, and he's like, you're going to be the next king of Israel. So he's like, okay. Uh, we're told within a few years, the king who was Saul at the time that David was a child began to get troubled by an evil spirit, and he needed a musician to come and play for him. And word had gotten around that David, who was this newly anointed king as a teenager, was also an amazing musician. Word got around, and so King Saul brought him in, and David would come in and play his harp. And the Bible tells us that while David played, the kind of evil spirit would leave Saul, and he would be at peace in his mind. Imagine that feeling. You've been told you're going to be the king one day, and then you, have this, you get employed to go and play music only meters away from the throne that you're one day going to sit on. David would be thinking, this is how it happens. <laughs> God uses you to do mighty things beyond your years. You know, when, when he was younger, killing lions and bears as only a, a small youth. And then we know the story of David and Goliath that Ed shared a couple of weeks ago. 
slaying this mighty giant that had been terrorizing an entire army. And you're a teenager, and you get out there, and you're like, I'm going to be king one day. And God shows up and helps you to kill this giant. Your music is this, like, has this superhuman ability to, like, cast out evil spirits anytime you play. There's no way that David mustn't have walked around thinking, I am the chosen one. Big Harry Potter vibes. You become best friends with the king's son, as uh, Raul talked about last week. You marry the king's daughter, and eventually David was appointed to be leader of the king's army. If you're planning out this guy's life, he gets a prophecy from when he's young, and every single thing that happens to him after that, you're like, oh, this is the absolute complete line of like, this is how he progresses to being the next king of Israel. And then this happens. King Saul, who had become at this point like a father figure to David, decides he's jealous of him, and he publicly declares that David is his mortal enemy. Next thing you know, if you're David, you've been exiled from your home, forced to live on the run, and you have to hide like an animal in the wilderness from all your childhood friends who have been instructed to kill you. In these years on the run, you're forced to live in caves, eat like an animal, hide amongst your enemies, pretend to be a madman just so they don't notice you, and you gather the very few allies that you can to keep you company. It must be crazy thinking the whiplash from being like, oh, this is happening to I'm running for my life. It must have been strange experiencing the goodness of God in such great ways and then living like an animal. We can get a window into the kind of anguish that David felt in Psalm 22, which I'll just open to it. It's got a very famous opening. Psalm 22, anyone, any Bible scholars out there know the opening of Psalm 22? Yell it out before I get there. Everyone's too scared. You'll probably get it wrong. And if you do get it wrong, you're a bad Christian. (laughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Everyone that sees me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Just the pain and anguish that David felt was so great. And he wrote that psalm right around this time that he was in the wilderness. In that moment, one day, in your travels, you come to a cave, and there, sleeping on the floor in front of you, is the source of all your pain and anguish, is your enemy, completely vulnerable, Try to imagine that headspace that David must have been in, staring down at Saul's sleeping body, all the betrayal and the anger, not to mention the entitlement, paired with this knowledge that God is with me, not with him. God wants me to be where he is. In that moment, David had the opportunity to take matters into his own hands and seize his destiny with violence. And instead, he chose 
to walk away twice. Why didn't David kill Saul? I think that the answer to this is what makes David so special. And it's so simple. He trusted in God. I think that David simply believed, firstly knowing that it wasn't his job to kill the king. He believed that if God was going to make him king, then God was going to do it. Which sounds so easy, but think about even for David, the great heroes of his faith struggled with this. What happened with Abraham when God promised that he was going to have a son? He freaked out and went and impregnated a servant girl because he didn't believe that it was actually going to happen. And then sure enough, the miracle did happen. Even a great hero like Abraham struggled to simply believe that God would do what God said that he could do. But David had seen God show up in his life time and again. From lions and bears, Goliath, evil spirits, he must have looked at Saul and said, why would this moment be any different? David learned that ultimately his life and his future were in God's hands, and it was up to God when he would be king, and Saul would not die by his hand. Uh, We sang this morning one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 62. And we get a glimpse into the mind of David when he says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, and I will not be shaken. How long will you assault me? Will all of you throw me down the leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place, and they take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless you in their hearts, but they curse. Yet my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, and I will not be shaken. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. So with zero evidence that things were going to get better and armed only with the promise that God said that he would do what he said he would do, David allowed Saul to live. And after the passage that Dixon read, we learn that very shortly after, I mean, he still, he let Saul know. I like that he, he took the spear in the water, literally the jug of water that you go to sleep next to. He's like, I'm just letting you know that I could have. Um, shortly after this moment, Saul died on the battlefield, and then David became king. So how do we as Christians cultivate that level of trust in God that David had? I believe that the life of David and the book of Psalms are kind of an amazing roadmap for a relationship with God and what intimacy with God can look like that leads us to trusting in Him. When you look at every pivotal moment of David's life, It was always paired with him seeking after God desperately. And it must have happened, you know, I'm now completely speculating, but I wonder if the sort of the creative artist in him, the musician, if this stuff was cultivated when he was sitting looking after sheep. If you think about who they must have known of God at the time, we just come out of the era of the judges. The perception of God was that he was this tyrannical, warmongering death machine. 
But David, from all of his time looking after sheep, was able to look up into the sky and write Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies declare the wonder of his hands. He sort of clued into this like other aspect of God, this beautiful, gentle aspect of God. And I think that that carries through to the rest of his life. You know, when in David's life, even once he was king, there were some pretty hectic things that happened. There was that a moment when they... Um, the story of the men, David and his men in Ziklag, when they come back from war and all of their families had been killed by the enemy. And immediately, it was so bad that all of David's friends and his men and his army turned on him. But David turned to the Lord. It says that he found comfort in God. Even when David sinned with Bathsheba and that story, and we're going to hear about that, I think, next week or the week after, David basically wanted to sleep with another man's wife and so played some Game of Thrones stuff to kind of get his way into her bed. Totally did the wrong thing. And as soon as he was called on it by the prophet, his immediate response was to run back to God, not to run from God, because this intimacy that he had with God, he knew that he could trust God to deal with him with mercy. Um, there's another time when... David, when he was starting to, as king, got a little bit prideful. And there's this weird story in the Bible where he counted his army. And it's basically that he just started to get a bit confident, a bit big for his own boots, and was like, maybe I don't need God as much as I thought I did. And he just counted the strength of his army just in case he decided he wanted to go and attack someone else. And God judged him for that. And God literally said, you have three ways that you can receive this judgment. And David, again, because of this intimacy he had with God, fell to his knees and said, all I want is to fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David trusted in this God that he served. And if you read through the book of Psalms, you can see all the joy, the pain, the lament, and the bitterness of what it looks like to have that kind of relationship with God. It's almost like reading David's journal entries. In those darkest moments of life, it really is hard to feel like God is in control. But when we take stock and look back over our lives at every moment that God has showed up, how can we not conclude that God will do what he says he will do? Just like David. When I was four, I had to check these details, but I found out this morning I was four. Uh, my mom and dad was at some conference. My parents are church pastors and singers. And apparently it was my sister, myself, and then my mom was pregnant with another sibling. It's five of us. And whoever the minister was turned to my parents and pointed at me and was like, your child will grow up and have great favor with the media, and he's going to receive a double portion of his father's anointing. I have no idea what I was doing it for, picking my nose probably. Uh, it's funny because my dad now is a theologian, but at the time, he and my mom were musicians. So it was always, I just grew up being told this as a kid, like, oh, yeah, you're going to have great favor with the media, and you're going to be twice as good as your father. Uh, and what's funny is I never wanted to be a musician. I, I think maybe because my whole family is five of us. My parents, we grew up watching Anna Green Gables. It was very, like, the Von Trapp family singers. So I think by the time that it was up to me, I was very happy not to ever do music. It was really the family business. 
Um, and in fact, all uh, most of my other siblings kind of pursued music in much more of a <clears throat> intentional way than I did. Um, but it's funny now, looking back, I'm I'm the one that had the most success. Um, <laughs> when I was a bit older, I don't really know what I I didn't grow up with this like strong desire to do anything specific. I think I just I think I just always had this kind of confidence that God had great things for me. Um, when I was a bit older, I remember finishing high school and thinking that I really wanted to be an actor. And then I remember doing the, I downloaded all the um, audition forms for the kind of Australian acting schools and stuff. But I remember doing this specific calculation that I couldn't think of a single actor that had my complexion that was like famous. The only one I could think of at the time was Benjamin Bratt who was in NYPD Blue and um, Miss Congeniality. So I just remember like calculating like, I'm not gonna be about that life, like being one of those out of work, people of color actors. The joke's on me, because I tell you what, if I had pursued it, I would be so rich right now. There's so <laughs> much work. <laughs> it's the worst time to be a white actor. <laughs> um, in those days, I just started to kind of make music, and I guess I would start to write songs in, in church. We sang two of my songs this morning, actually. Um, I say all of this because I sort of had this weird piece that I was like, whether it was acting or tried at one point studied screenwriting and then realized very quickly that I'm not talented at all in that area. Um, but I would like, every time I would pick up an instrument, I just would feel the favor of God in my life, and I would feel like doors open for me. And, you know, with the church that my parents had started, we, I would write songs and we would lead worship and we would travel. We got to go to Nashville and travel. Um, my mom and dad would run these kind of discipleship conferences, and I would just go thinking I was going to be a filmmaker, but I'd play worship. And then, like, doors would open, and next thing you know, we're getting offered a record deal to record worship music and all this stuff. And I remember really feeling like, oh, God, I can actually see how, like, all these incredible doors are opening in front of me. And, like, I guess you really are in control. And then about 10 years ago, I just feel like the rug was pulled from beneath me and my whole life descended into complete and utter chaos. Um, some of the details, I'll get into it another time, but... It was a mix of personal chaos, spiritual chaos. There was a lot of tears and lonely nights. Uh, I, really, I really feel like I sort of felt like I'd reached the heights of whatever this sort of life I thought I was headed towards. I nearly got married. I just felt like there was just all these open doors in front of me and then all one by one, not only were the doors closed, they were just obliterated. Like it was just felt like I was sent off into the wilderness. Weirdly, around that time, uh, I started really throwing myself into my music that had nothing to do with church. And then that was a weird time because I then felt like God would open these doors there. And I felt like, oh, okay, so maybe it's not about like church music. Maybe it's like, I don't know, secular music, as we love to say. <laughs> um, I signed record deals. I had the first label I was with was so cool, and then it turns out they were the worst. And then I signed with another label, and then it turned out they were the worst. I just had this sort of weird habit of having the worst timing imaginable. I made an album that was all about my 
tumultuous sort of experience of my faith. And everyone, I was signed to this major label deal, and it was this great kind of thing. And I was just like, wow, God, this is really great. We're really kicking goals. And I moved to L.A. to release the album. We'd spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars making this thing. And I was like, this could be the one. And then I decided to move to L.A. January 2020 to put out my great work. Uh, and then, <laughs> not to make the pandemic all about me, <laughs> but um, turns out <laughs> it was a terrible time. Uh, I really feel like I went through, and look, I am absolutely keenly aware that my version of hardship is not the same as being on the run for your life. But the feeling that God has called you to something and the feeling that God has your life in his hands, and then every single day that follows that feeling is just being smacked in the face with hardship after hardship after hardship becomes very difficult to believe that anyone is possibly in control. I feel like I really have gone through years of bargaining with God. What kings do I have to kill to make this thing happen? I think that, you know, I went through all the versions of like, did I get it wrong? What, did, what sin, what great sin did I do to disqualify me from the amazing call that you had? I don't know. I feel like when you've grown up in church, that sort of vocabulary becomes part of your life. And none of it is biblical. None of it is, you know, God's grace and mercy is so great. Um, but I went through all of those things. And I will say that I really... Over the course of my life, as I have felt like life has been pulling me, according to my interpretation, further and further away from whatever kind of great purpose God had for me, uh, I really identify with David. When you read through the Psalms and you read the ups and downs, I really identify with the honesty of his relationship with God. And I realized as I was thinking about this and just, just looking through the life of David, that I think that was the point. The intimacy and the honest trust that he had with God enabled him to be able to have that kind of faith. That the guy that could write, the heavens declare the glory of God or praise the Lord in the splendor of his majesty, God is great, his enemies be scattered, can also write, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. That was my favorite psalm for a long time, <laughs> when things were bad. I realized that what I've done in my life, for better or worse, is that every single moment of my life, the highs and lows, even when I've run from God, I have dragged him with me. I've cultivated a relationship with him that I'm like, okay, you know what, God, after I went through my the bad time 10 years ago. And the bad time had nothing to do with my music career. This was all, you know, deeply heart stuff, personal stuff. But I remember making a deal with God that I was like, all right, I'm about to do some bad things, but you're coming with me every step of the way. It's the only way that we're going to be able to pull through this. I'm about to walk into some situations that I know are not good for me, but the only way I can do this is if you come with me. That was the measure of faith that I had at that time. I'm not saying that that's what a great Christian does. Save me, God, for the waters have come up to my neck. What's amazing is now, I mean, I, 
I'm a bit older now. I can look back and be so thankful for just the incredible ways that God has blessed me in my life. And I think this, some of this just happens as you get older in your life. You realize that even your career ambitions and things, you sort of, someone once gave me great advice. I remember it was my manager years ago. I remember I had this panic about, what if I miss the moment? What if we miss the moment? And he, he was like, there is no moment. This is the moment. And I've realized as a Christian and as a human being, we're not headed for some like pinnacle thing or peak. This is it. Where we are is it. And what becomes fun is then when you look back and reflect on, oh, I can look at my life and recognize the goodness of God showing up at so many moments in that journey. That I actually do trust God, that I don't feel the need to take things into my own hands with my life because I've realized when I, when I stop and reflect, I can go, oh, yeah, here I am on the other side of the world from where I grew up. How did I end up speaking at a church in L.A.? It's amazing to me when I think about how much God has done in my life and when I look at the life of David and how at all these pivotal moments God shows up and he stops and takes stock of that and is thankful for it. I do the same. I mean, years ago when I, I thought I was never going to lead worship again uh, and when Ed and Hannah gave me the opportunity to do it here, it felt terrifying and amazing. And I remember like, a few Sundays into that, it was around this time last year, the first time we ever sang the goodness of God, I just cried. Because I just had one of those moments where I was like, oh yeah, all my life you have been faithful. <laughs> There's an incredible moment in the story that we just read before where it says, where is it? David took the spear in the water jug near Saul's head. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. I think that's a really interesting detail. I feel like it's almost like God put Saul to sleep and all of his men to give David the opportunity to have a fork in the road. Are you going to trust me or are you going to take matters into your own hands? The Bible is filled with these sorts of stories where God's promise is followed by the wilderness. Just think about the story of Joseph. Or, you know, one of our favorite scriptures to quote. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Do you know when God told that to the people of Israel? Just before they went into 70 years of exile. Not even in the middle of it. They were fine. And then he was like, he was like, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And they were walking around going, he's going to prosper us. He's going to make us into a great nation. He knows the plans he has for us. And then like two weeks later, they were being marched out of their homes into the desert. They all died. Their children's children were going, he has a plan for us to prosper us. Ultimately, I just think as, as Christians... The greatest thing we can do is just trust God with all this stuff. It's my prayer that all of us can learn to have that kind of trust and confidence in God, that our souls can find that rest that comes only from Him. Um, why don't we get the band up and let's just sing.
Thank goodness of God. Feels right. Um, I encourage you, I don't know what kind of journey everybody's on in their lives, but reading the book of Psalms is really great. It's a great way to get to know God. I really think it's like a roadmap to intimacy with him. If you just read them and just, there were poems, they're short, it's kind of easy. But cultivate that kind of relationship because that's how you build trust with someone. Um, and it's my prayer that we would all learn to trust in him and to believe that he really will do what he says that he will do.